I'm Stephen Hundley from IUPUI, and this is the award-winning podcast, Leading Improvements in Higher Education, a service of the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis. Our sponsor for this season is the Center for Assessment and Research Studies at James Madison University. In this episode, we spend time with Drew Koch, Chief Executive Officer of the John N. Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education. The Gardner Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving outcomes associated with teaching, learning, retention, and completion, along with promoting higher education's larger goal of achieving equity and social justice. I know you will enjoy the insights from our conversation with Drew Koch during this episode of Leading Improvements in Higher Education. I'm so delighted we're spending time with the leader from the Gardner Institute on today's episode of the podcast. Drew, welcome to the program. I'm so delighted you're here. Stephen, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you. And as we begin, uh, like we always do, we'd like to learn a little bit about you as an individual and a professional. So we're going to ask you to tell us all about Drew Koch's background, including your career trajectory, how you came to the Gardner Institute, and a brief description of your current role. Glad to do that, Stephen. I am um, pleased to be able to share that I am a Pisces. I like meatballs, and uh, I have not won a fantasy football league any time in the past decade. That has nothing to do with how I got to the Gardner Institute, however. And on a, on a more serious note, um, I am the child of immigrants, and um, my parents came. Uh, to the U.S. in the 50s after uh, uh, suffering through and living through the Second World War in, in Europe. Um, both of them came here. Uh, actually, my father came uh, having being forced to leave school when he was 14. He became a tool and die maker, an apprentice. Uh, and uh, my mother at least had gone through the equivalent of high school. Um, but they both came here with the desire you know, to have for their children uh, what what uh, is often referenced as, you know, living the American dream or the pursuit of the American dream. And that absolutely positively included and involved education and higher education. Um, and so from, you know, as long as I can remember, uh, you know, uh, it was not if you go to college, it was when you go to college. Um, you know, and to be forthright with you in my first year of college at the tail end of it, one of my teammates and classmates said he was thinking about transferring. And I didn't even know you could do such a thing at that point in time. Right. So because uh, you went to college and you, you finished it. Right. So um, so I am very much so, um, you know, first generation born in the U.S. English wasn't my first language. We spoke German in the home growing up. But in German, uh, it was always about when you're going to college. And of course, we did speak English over time, too, as well. Right. Um, so that was uh, sort of the the foundational uh, experience that that an environment in which I, I grew up. Um, I was fortunate in that I got to go to college in a way that uh, uh, my, my parents didn't. My father eventually finished his high school equivalency at night in, in Newark, New Jersey, not far from where we lived. And 
then pursued higher ed degrees at, at then what was called Newark College of Engineering. But he always wanted his kids to go to a residential sort of experience. And I got to do that. Um, however, when I went by that point in time, my father had passed away after a four year uh, uh, cancer experience. Um, and uh, so, you know, I was a my mom at that juncture was a single mom. She had three kids um, and I didn't even know there were financial aid forms. And when I finally realized there were such things by the tail end of my undergrad experience, I, I qualified for need based aid. Right. So um, there are many experiences I had in my foundational years and in my college experiences that shaped who I am today and why I do what I do. Um, one of the uh, sort of serendipitous experience I had was when I was finishing my undergrad degree, and this was, was fortunate enough to go to the University of Richmond. Um, and um, I had a <laughs> I secured a uh, job in a bank training program. And um, the, the training program ended because the bank got bought out. This was in the uh, uh, early 90s. And I actually felt this tremendous sense of relief because, see, I felt, Stephen, like I needed to have a job coming out of college. And so, you know, I I went into this because they offered and it was something to do. But when they ended the training program before I even got to start it, it really compelled me to think, what do I want to do? And uh, I decided I wanted to be a teacher involved in education. I went on to get social studies certification. Um did student teaching and then long-term subbing in a uh, an urban uh, high school in Richmond, Virginia. And while working there, got a phone call from um, the dean of the summer college at my undergraduate alma mater. I was I was working on a master's degree in history at the time as well, as long as teaching certification. And she she asked me like seven eight times. Uh, if I wanted to be the assistant to the dean for a summer bridge program at the University of Richmond. And I kept asking what that was. And she had known me because, you know, at a smaller institution, the dean of the summer program and uh, is also in charge of uh, student athlete support during the academic year. And, you know, she also was a clinical faculty member, right? I mean, it's wore many hats. And after about the seventh, eighth time asking, what does it mean to be the assistant to the dean, Dr. Johnson? She said, damn it, Drew, it means you drive the van. And I was like, OK, I can do that. Right. Um, it was because of my keen van driving skills that I got to work with the Summer Bridge program. And I really found a niche there, Stephen. It was that that sweet spot. You know, I was teaching uh, civics and government to high school juniors and seniors and trying to help them uh, get out of uh, uh, and urban environment, not not because it was a bad environment, but it was a very difficult environment from a standpoint of uh, generational cycles of poverty. And one of the ways to break those cycles was, in my view, and I still believe it, I believe it even more now, and I definitely believed it firmly then, was to, to uh, go to college, right? And it used to madden me that we could get some of the students, not all of them, but some of the students to go, and then they didn't stick around long. <laughs> Right. I mean, the high school at the time that I was teaching in was uh, over 90 percent African-American and uh, nearly 90 percent free and reduced lunch. Right. So there were a lot of systemic challenges uh, and and uh, challenges that stem back to the nation's founding even um, 
So this bridge program allowed me to work with students who came out of environments like that and help set them up for success. And um, I remember like expressing how much I love doing this to the Dean, Candine Johnson, as her name, Dr. Johnson. And uh, she said, to me, you know, if you really want to do this thing, you, you probably should think about uh, getting some form of education graduate degree. Um, I knew Steve and I wanted to someday do a, a PhD in either American studies or a history. And I wound up doing that years later at, at Purdue University in, in American studies. Um, but at that juncture, I took her advice. And then she said, well, if you if you're going to do that, you should really think about the University of South Carolina. And she had given me such keen advice. I'll be honest with you, Stephen, I didn't even ask her why. I just did. Right. And I applied there, applied to a number of other places, but applied to South Carolina. And then as we talked more, you know, I'd been admitted and she said, well, they do this work around the first college year. And she said, uh, and, and if you go down there and if you talk to a guy named John Gardner, um, I'll hire you back as a, as assistant to the Dean again next year. Right. I mean, it was, so I did that. I, I went and I called and got an appointment with this guy named John Gardner and without going into the next 30 years of, you know, my existence or <laughs> that Stephen is how you become the chief executive officer of the John N. Gardner Institute for excellence in undergrad education. Right. I, I met with him. Um, he suggested I enroll in a course that he and a, Professor Betsy Barefoot taught. Uh, I wrote a paper on my philosophy on the first year experience. And I wound up writing a lot about the LA riots and um, disenfranchised uh, citizenry and uh, how the first college year should be both about uh, helping students be successful in college, but also successful in life and part of a uh, vibrant democracy. They called me in and I thought I was in trouble for not sticking to the assignment and instead, you know, offered me a grad assistantship. So, um, you know, stayed in touch over the years, um, left South Carolina, worked at Hofstra University for a while uh, after about three years at Hofstra. Did 13, not quite 14 years at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. And then uh, in around 2007, 2008, you know, John, uh, and Betsy had uh, co-founded the Gardner Institute and um, uh, started talking about how their board was talking about the need uh, for a succession plan and would I be willing to consider coming and working with them. And uh, it, it, it was a uh, wonderful opportunity because, of course, they had been wonderful professors, wonderful mentors. Uh, we, we are we our relationship grew over the decades. And um, this presented an opportunity to do work nationally that, um, uh, you know, I'd been doing in uh, institutions or as long as I was at Purdue um, as well regionally or within the state of Indiana. Um, so been here at the Gardner Institute since 2010, um, you know, having taken, taken Betsy and John up on their offer. Uh, we are now here, my partner in life uh, and uh, uh, you know, wife of 26 years, uh, best friend, friend for 28 years, knew her for a few years beforehand, you know, came with me. She's a fellow at the Institute. We uh, live in Mills River, North Carolina. And when people ask where that is or what that is, I say, well, if you go to Asheville and you get farm to table, Mills River is the farm that put that on the Asheville table, right? It's about 20 minutes away from Asheville and it's 
it's mostly, well, it's it's changing, but it's largely a rural environment. And the other cool thing about Mills River, it's right between Brevard and Asheville, and Brevard is where the Gardner Institute is, quote unquote, headquartered. So, uh, you know, I came here as a vice president, had a few promotions over the years. And then uh, uh, John, in his role as chair of our board, John and Betsy, both on the board, uh, asked me about a year ago if I would... Um, take on the role of chief executive officer. And so I, I did that then. So it's it's not quite a year I've been in the role, but again, with the organization for starting my 13th year now. So I, I took you from birth to being uh, the CEO of the Gardner Institute in this very moment right now that we're living in, Stephen, in probably like seven minutes. So while that might've seemed loquacious, I just covered 54 years and seven minutes. Uh, I'm amazed. I don't know if your listeners are, but uh, those who know me are very amazed that I can do that. So anyway, I'll turn it back to you, Stephen. But that's a bit about me. That's a bit about how we uh, got here, what prepared me to you know, get here and um, you know, some of the why, what motivates me to do this work. Really, at the end of the day, I am very interested in uh, coming up with an answer, an inclusive answer to the question of uh, who gets to be an American. Right. And and a fully enfranchised and fully engaged American. Uh, and that's hardwired in me. And I'm fortunate to be able to work in an environment uh, that allows me to do that with a board chair and John and a board member and Betsy and a, a much broader board as well. That really encourages me to do that. So that's Stephen. That's who I am. That's what I do. And that's why I do it here. Drew, thank you for sharing your background, including your personal narrative around higher education's role in contributing to the American dream, including who gets to be an American in your words there. You also were describing the importance of mentors and the role that a mentor can play in helping to seed and shape your future. And you've gone from driving the van in that summer program many years ago at the University of Richmond to now piloting a broader higher education agenda, a really an influential one at the Gardner Institute. So thanks for that backdrop and background on you. Uh, speaking of the Gardner Institute, and we should acknowledge, as you did, its official name is the John N. Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education. So speaking of the Gardner Institute, let's have you describe for our listeners its purpose. What types of work does the Gardner Institute do and who are its clients? Glad to, Stephen. So the uh, John N. Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education, a.k.a. the Gardner Institute in a truncated format, is uh, now a 23-year-old uh, 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to help uh, educators, institutions, uh, philanthropic organizations, and uh, other uh, not-for-profit organizations to improve teaching, learning, student success, and completion, a very heavily academic-focused mission, although we view educators broadly, both inside and outside the classroom, right? So it's that's the first sentence, uh, improve teaching, learning, student success, and completion. And the second sentence is uh, to advance broader societal aims associated with equity and social justice. Um, we always had that equity and social justice aspect implicit. If, uh, you know, John and Betsy, it, it, it's hardwired in them. I use that phrase a little bit about myself a while back. That's definitely within them. In fact, um, John lost a job because of his civil rights uh activity early on in his career, and it's just who he is and what he does. Um, but it was explicit 
or made explicit with input from our board in 2016. So it's always been an implicit part since we were founded in 1999, but very explicit. And um, I will say that uh, we were funded early on by the Pew Charitable Trust uh, by a gentleman named Russ Edgerton, who was the program officer. He also funded, at the time, a few other projects, uh, one at Indiana University, something called the Nessie, uh, some projects with accreditors, one with SAC COC and the Quality Enhancement Project, and uh, another with uh, the Higher Learning Commission on the uh, what's turned into the Quality Initiative. I think it was the Peak and AQIP approaches, right? All these initiatives were funded by uh, Russ Edgerton and Pew at the time. We were funded to do new work that was focused, that was assessment-based and really focused on learning. So you can see the origins of the organization um, really come out of assessment evaluation and learning-focused assessment evaluation uh, connected back to student success, right? So it's a bit about our why. Our what now is, um, you know, how we do the work and what we do the work. We focus uh, in many aspects of the undergrad experience. That's why we're not the John and Gardner Institute for the first year uh, or things along those lines. Right. We certainly do work around the first college year. We also do work around transfer. We also do work around gateway courses and faculty development pedagogy. Uh, We do broader retention related work. We have a whole series of leadership capacity development um, uh, efforts with boards, efforts with cabinets, efforts with chief academic officers around innovation, uh, various academies, et cetera. So we probably have a dozen and a half, otherwise known as 18, uh, different types of things that we do, some of which we link together intentionally based on institutional need, what the evidence suggests. And in other cases, we're doing them as sort of uh, a series of one-off engagements, and that's based on institutional readiness and willingness and ability to do that work, which is also an evaluation that we do to help guide the work. So uh, we, we work on helping institutions transform various aspects of the undergrad experience. We've worked with, uh, to uh, another part of the question, 512 institutions as of last week since our founding. Um Roughly a third are community colleges or primarily associates granting institutions. Uh, And then there are two thirds are uh, four year institutions, Uh, just shy of four million uh, students, undergraduate students across those 512 institutions. Um, They have slightly higher enrollments of Black, Latinx, and Indigenous students than the nation does at large. The nation is just about 20% Latinx. The institutions that we've worked with, about 24%. uh, We're about 13, 14% on uh, Black, African-American learners. The nation's about 11%. From an Indigenous standpoint, we're just a little below the the national um, proportion, which is about 1.4%, or about 1.1, 1.2, but we're working on that. We've worked with 52 out of about 100 HBCUs. We've worked with 80-plus HSIs and six of the 31 accredited tribal colleges. Um, That may sound like a lot, particularly when you look at the HBCU numbers. I would 
say that uh, though the remaining out of the 512 are disproportionately historically white institutions that are increasingly with a nod to Nathan Graw with the uh, demographic shift that's going on, um, you know, serving students that they were never really designed to serve, right? Uh, a, a much more diverse student populations, a lot of low-income students as well, right? So probably gives you more detail than you ever wanted there, Stephen. Uh, but that's our mission. Those are some of the things we do. And those are the types of institutions with which we work with. Um, I will say an overarching theme on all this goes back to what Russ Edgerton asked us to do in 1999 when he made the initial investment, when he sat down with uh, Betsy and John to talk through, and that is to do uh, new forms of assessment focused on student learning and student success. And that's what we're doing in all those institutions and in all those areas, assessment-based improvement work, transformation work. So back to you, Stephen. That was a heck of a lot from Drew. I appreciate you sharing about the Gardner Institute, including your clients and the broad umbrella of work that you do to support the entirety of the undergraduate experience. And you know, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Gardner Institute's namesake, that, of course, being John Gardner, tell us a little more about this key influencer in higher education. You previewed a little bit of that in a prior answer, but what role did John and his collaborators play in enhancing our understanding of student learning and success? I'm glad to, Stephen, very glad to. Of course, John is our namesake, and John is currently our executive board chair and uh, co-founder of the Gardner Institute. Um, his other co-founder, and I referenced this earlier, was Betsy Barefoot, right? So uh, John and Betsy both co-founded the Gardner Institute, although early on, you know, I would say that they weren't quite, they wouldn't be able to tell you that they were founding the Gardner Institute, right? And I and I say that because um, when Russ Edgerton from Pew came along and invited some, he invited, I think, like a 15 or 18 month project, right? And John and Betsy uh, had left the University of South Carolina for love, right? I mean, it, it's, it's as simple as that. Um, they were working together at, uh, at the University of South Carolina and the National Resource Center for the first year experience in students in transition. And they decided to get married, speaking about a transition, right? And, um, and at that point in time, uh, uh, given state nepotism laws, the only uh, persons of the uh, same familial bloodline who could work together were Skip and Lou Holtz. But John Gardner and Betsy Barefoot would not be able to if they got married. Um, so they decided to take early retirement. Um, they kind of did a, a wish list or an assignment list, like where in the country would we want to respectively go to? And and they came back to each other with their list and, and sort of the Asheville Brevard uh, Western North Carolina region was on the list. So they 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 moved here to, quote unquote, retire. And um, because in hindsight, and hindsight is a powerful thing, uh, Russ Edgerton and Pew came along, they in essence failed retirement. So were what's happened when uh, two people decide to retire in the mountains and then fail retirement, right? Um, Pew did some uh, investment in our work. Uh, they uh, brought us, Russ Edgerton brought us, and by us at that juncture, I mean uh, Betsy and John, John and Betsy, to Atlantic Philanthropies. And then after that, Lumina Foundation. And it was Lumina that funded our uh, initial 
self-study and redesign transformation work around the first college year, something called Foundations of Excellence. And that was 2003. And um, all the while we had been hosting our work or our work has been hosted uh, in Brevard College, uh, because again, John and Betsy didn't know they were going to set up a not-for-profit. But as we started to go forward and we were doing more work with institutions, the auditor of Brevard College said, you know what, um, you're really a different thing than Brevard College. And to avoid complications for both the college and you, you should be set up differently as an independent 501c3. And so in 2007, that occurred. It was an amicable separation. I'm going to meet with the new president of Brevard College tomorrow, right? And I did an ACE fellowship there in 2013. Betsy's on the board, right? We parted the best of friends and we continue to interact. But we were set up as an independent 501c3. At that juncture, we got an independent board and it was the board's recommendation that, um, you know, we name the organization after John uh, and we've been um, operating with that nomenclature ever since. Right. So kind of gives you a little sense. Um, Of course, John uh, was the person for those who don't know who um, started this thing that he even named the first year experience. Uh, I, I think many people working in higher ed today uh, may not realize that there wasn't a thing called the first year experience before somebody turned and said, you know, there's a lot of work being done around the first year and uh, began thinking about what should we call it? Um, you know, John convened some folks based on work he had been doing at South Carolina around a first year seminar in uh Columbia, South Carolina, 1982, and over 170 people showed up for that convening, and they said, "Well, don't ever do this. Do a conference again on just first-year seminars. Why don't you uh, go broader and focus on the entirety of the first college year?" And at that time, they called it the freshman year experience, and um, and he did that. One thing led to another, and a few years later, I think it was around 86. Uh, John started the National Resource Center, um, then the freshman year experience. Um, By the time I got there in uh, 93, right, because Dr. Johnson told me I I couldn't come back and work for her if I didn't go talk to John Gardner, um, it had changed its name from the freshman year experience to the first year experience, acknowledging that over half of all learners were not men or I didn't identify as men, uh, but were rather uh, female or a different gender, right? So first year experience um, and uh, included then students in transition because recognized there were other forms of first year students, especially transfers. So, uh, you know, that's John's backdrop with a lot of this. Betsy joined the National Resource Center in the late 80s while she was working on her dissertation at William Mary uh, and um or while she was working on her doctorate at William & Mary, her dissertation uh, focused on a typology for first-year seminars and uh, further formed an annual or periodic survey on first-year seminar programs that I think still occurs today out of the National Resource Center. So um, because John and Betsy spent so much time building up the National Resource Center and um, 
you know, promoting first year seminars as well as other work around the first college year. Every now and then we get asked like, oh, or people say we love the University of South Carolina and, and uh, you know, Columbia is awesome. And, you know, how's the weather? Well, we love the University of South Carolina, too, John, uh, having been a tenured full professor there and Betsy having uh, been um, uh, clinical faculty and also working there and me being a grad student and a grad assistant there, it's, it's great, but we're not there, right? We're in Western North Carolina and we're not the National Resource Center. And we hope they love our conference, but it's not the annual conference on the first year experience, right? So that's all South Carolina. We're in North Carolina and we're doing this broader, more, uh, well, I would say more broadly focused assessment work around Things like the first year experience, but also the transfer experience, the gateway course experience, a host of other pieces. So that's a bit of the John and Betsy backdrop, our two co-founders. Uh, they're live and well. Uh, you know, John, uh, as I mentioned, continues to function as uh, our executive chair on our board uh, and doing all sorts of uh, new types of innovation. Uh podcast series, uh, 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 work with chief academic officers on innovation, things along those lines. Betsy is involved in a, a few projects of her, of her liking. She, she gets involved in what she wants to do. She says she doesn't want to do anything else. And that's her call. Uh, she's on her board active in that. And uh, we're fortunate still to have them engaged in the work that we're doing. Drew, thank you for sharing information about John and Betsy. And I know we're delighted that they are not failing in retirement, but it sounds like, of course, they are doing just the opposite, thriving and succeeding. This would probably be a good time to invite our listeners to visit the Gardner Institute's website. That website may be found at jngi.org. So, Drew, as we continue our themes from some of the previous questions, let's note that the Gardner Institute seeks to increase institutional responsibility for improving outcomes associated with, as you were telling us, teaching, learning, student success, and completion. Why are these outcomes important, and what are some of the promising practices you have observed to achieve these outcomes? Stephen, at the, the end of the day, we believe, and when I say we, I don't mean just Drew or Drew and the staff or, or even Drew, the staff and Betsy and John. And there's, of course, tremendous overlap there. But our board, it all goes back to our mission that um, you cannot have student success. And you cannot have equitable student success in particular uh, if you're not focusing on equity and learning. And um And by that, and if you're focusing on that, then you have to focus on um, when and where uh, students uh, might experience unjust design in the undergrad experience. And then what you can do to um, highlight, illuminate, shine light on unjust design, unquestioned design, unexamined design, um, and make a more socially just uh, or create a more socially just design for the undergraduate experience or some aspect of the undergraduate experience right now. Um, So in order to do that, you have to focus on who teaches, how students are taught, how those who teach are supported uh, both by uh, both in the classroom and and outside the classroom, who advises, uh, you know, how in term advisors are supported. Um, 
uh, developed capacities are being developed. And uh, that ultimately comes back to what is an institutional plan for doing these things, whether it's in gateway courses, whether it's in the advising experience, whether it's in transfer, whether it's in the first year experience. In the absence of a plan, an institution needs a plan. And uh, once they have a plan, they have to implement that plan to a high degree. So our work, Stephen, has been very much so focused on those areas, and particularly helping educators broadly, both those in the classroom and those who support what goes on in the classroom experience. And that should be everybody at a college or university. Um, help them uh, create plans and then implement plans that yield uh more just design and more equitable outcomes. Now, by equitable outcomes, ultimately, Stephen, we mean eliminating race, ethnicity, and family income and other demographic variables, in some cases, gender and many other variables are, are um, as the best predictors of who succeeds in a given discipline, right? And sadly, right now, those are some of the best predictors of who succeeds. So if you were going to construct a, uh, a undergrad experience, where those were eliminated as the best predictor, where the prediction is that every learner, regardless of their race and ethnicity, their family's income, gender, could succeed, what would that look like, right? So we work with educators really to focus on teaching, learning, student success and completion um, with a eye directly on and fingers on the pulse of uh, making sure that uh, students who start in specific fields finish in those fields, if that's actually uh, what they're interested in. Um, and that access to those fields is also not deterred or denied at the onset, right? So these areas matter um, because we know those are the areas that can either uh, you know, deny dreams and aspirations, going back to uh, the realization of the American dream, or enable it and really serve as a catalyst for opportunity in the United States. Um, and that, again, gets back to our broader why, right, an equity and social justice mission. So we know teaching, learning, and student success and completion matter. We also know that uh, right now, uh, when you look at who succeeds and who doesn't, it comes often down to uh, privileges associated with birth. Uh, and we're here to eliminate that as the predictor of who ultimately completes college in the United States. Drew, thank you. You're encouraging us to create a more socially just design for the undergraduate experience. And to do so, you encourage us also to have institutional plans for doing this work. As we've been discussing, a key feature of the Gardner Institute's work itself centers on striving to advance higher education's larger goal of achieving equity and social justice. So, Drew, how do you define these concepts and what are some examples of how institutions are or perhaps should be focusing on equity and social justice on their campuses? So, Stephen, I, I alluded to or flat out mentioned um, social justice and the designing for or creating a just design in some of my previous responses right now. I want to uh, provide a few exemplars of how that can be realized and how that is being realized uh, by institutions involved in work that um, we're privileged to facilitate, but at the end of the day, they have to do the work, right? I mean, um, we like to say, and uh, every now and then John likes to quip, we can't force anyone to do anything, right? And uh, But we can encourage, we can facilitate, we can guide, uh, we can bring wisdom, uh, we can bring hope 
and inspire. And, and that is in part what we do. We can also bring a structure. Uh, and I would say this was absolutely positive the case before the global pandemic. It's only been amplified and exacerbated as a result of the pandemic. Institutions uh, can do anything they set their mind to, but it is easier, uh, particularly from a bandwidth standpoint, if they don't have to reinvent the wheel in order to do work around redesigning the undergrad experience. So when you're an organization like ours that's worked with, as I mentioned earlier, 512 colleges and universities over the past 23 years, you learn a few things about how to do that. Now, let me give you one example. We have been doing work around the first college year uh, in the foundations of excellence in the first college year process since 2003, right? With a nod to Lumina Foundation for funding that initial work. Um, we've worked with over 300 in colleges and universities to date. Now, I mentioned the 512. Those are unique institutions. We have a lot of institutions that are repeat participants with us, right? So it's the difference between uh, FTE and uh duplicated headcount, right? We're from an unduplicated standpoint, it's 512, although some of those 512 has worked with us in three, four, five things, right? One of those things is work around the first college year and foundations of excellence. What we have done there is uh, provided a structure and we've mimicked this, uh, replicated this in our other work around gateway courses, around transfer, around advising there. We did that with Nakata. Let's create a sense of aspirational standards and key performance indicators within those standards where institutions gather and then analyze evidence. We help them do that. We provide a structure for that. And then they use that evidence to rate themselves in these, in this case, in Foundations of Excellence in nine different dimensions with um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60, 70 key performance indicators. They rate themselves. We don't rate them or grade them. And when they rate themselves, they rate themselves highly in some areas. And in other areas, they rate themselves not so highly. And usually what happens in the areas where they don't rate themselves highly, they also talk about what they're going to do, what they're going to implement in order to uh, uh, become better at the first year experience, right? So I'm using that as an example of how the work is done. An external evaluator took a look at 151 institutions that had worked with us up until about 2011. And what he found of the 151 is that uh, institutions that self-identified as high implementers of their plan that they generated uh, recorded over a four-year period of time a 5.62 percentage point increase in first to second year IPEZ retention rates. Uh, what's important to note here is that these were either open access or relatively low selectivity institutions by and large, right? There were a two or three uh, AAU select institutions in there, but by and large, they were not, right? And I, I don't mean that in a disparaging manner. I mean, they were educating and they are educating um, the demographic in the United States. They actually got better by doing better with and by the students they actually had. They didn't get better by winnowing opportunity, you know, um, cutting 500 out of the first year class so that prior learning became the best predictor and privilege became the best predictor of who succeeds. So I mentioned a 5.62 percentage point in iPads, uh, first to second year retention rates over a four year period of time. This was at a point in time where according to ACT, retention rates remained largely flat, right? Now that same external evaluator 
took a look at uh, the outcomes from these institutions on four, five, six, and eight-year grad rates a decade later. And the reason why you have to wait a decade is, you know, as you know, Stephen, there's a bit of a lag in iPads data. And if you're going to look at four, five, six, and eight-year grad rates, you need to work, wait four, five, six, and eight years, right? So the initial study was done in 2011. And in 2021, he did the next study, right? We had to just wait for it. Uh, what he found is that um, these institutions also experienced significant increases in four, five, six, and eight-year grad rates, and that the increases, particularly for Black, Latinx, Indigenous learners, and low-income learners, as uh, identified as Pell recipients, were even higher than the mean differences, the average differences at these institutions. So, you know, that doesn't mean there aren't aspects, and we know there are aspects in the second year, the third year, the fourth year that also need to be improved. But there is a direct correlation between improving the first and second year, uh, seeing stronger retention rates as reported and measured uh, through the iPads uh, system and also seeing uh, grad rate increases later and closing of inequitable performance gaps. <clears throat> so that gives you a bit of a sense how we do the work, uh, where the focus is on uh, teaching, learning, and student success, and the type of outcomes that we're seeing uh, as a result of doing that work, right? That's one slice, one sliver, and one set of outcomes. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of other areas, but you don't have all year to listen to me talk about all those things, Stephen. So I'll stop with that exemplar and the, the manner in which we do work and the, the way it yields outcomes and results. One last thing, though, that I do need to say. I mentioned earlier the external evaluator asked the institutions to rate themselves uh, on the degree to which they implemented their plans. And I, the, the thing I mentioned earlier is we, we looked at high implementers, but we also looked at medium implementers. There were only four of those, low implementers and no implementers. And uh, roughly about a quarter of the place is self-identified as high implementers. Uh, and you can do the math on it, then, meaning the overwhelming majority, well over half, uh, a little over two thirds actually were low or no implementers. Now, some of that no implementation or low implementation could have just been a factor of time, right? The external evaluator evaluated them at a period of time and they had just finished self-study work. But some places just never implemented the plan that they generated. And so the, the big takeaway on all that, it, it, it's great to have a plan but um, having a plan is is insufficient. You actually have to implement that plan to a high degree to see these types of outcomes. And one other sad note on that is the low and no implementers actually experience attrition over these times, which means that the types of outcomes that I'm talking about and the, the mean difference you know, or the average difference in iPads first to second year retention rates, the increase was about 3.5 percentage points a little shy of 6%. Um, but those high implementers had such uh, sort of laudable or high outcomes that they pulled everyone up, even the low implementers and no implementers who experienced attrition. So that is a big takeaway in all of this. And that is something we've applied to all of our work. We're not just helping institutions create plans. We're now working with them to make sure they implement them and implement them to a high degree. So, Stephen, back to you, my friend. I, I, I overshared. 
Well, Drew, you're sharing the importance of evidence-informed planning and the indeed implementation of that plan, especially in the first-year experience, and how that can help us begin addressing equity gaps in higher education. Well, Drew, let me ask you a follow-up question concerning another uh, set of activity that you promote through the Gardner Institute, and that, of course, is the Gateways to Completion. How does this work help also support addressing equity gaps in higher education. Steve, I'm glad to talk about that one. And, and, you know, up until this point in time, I was talking about institutions as learning organizations. I'd be remiss. Uh, you know, the Gardner Institute's a learning organization as well, right? And as we work um, with institutions to help them shape and transform themselves, we, we are shaped and transformed as well. One of the outcomes from the work around the first college year and also around transfer, right, um, was and in hindsight, we should have and could have predicted this. And in fairness, we actually factored a little bit into the first year redesign work, but was the significance of foundational level courses, gateway courses. Um, and um, we had been collecting through work with institutions, their quote in the first year, their quote unquote quote, top five highest enrollment courses. And um, up until that point in time, probably 2010, 2011, 2012, um, we might have been the only organization, a national organization that was collecting that info and was in a position to share it. And I'm not sound, saying that to be haughty. I'm just saying it because we didn't hear anybody else share that info and we were frequently asked to share what we were learning. Um, doing that prompted us to say, you know, if people are this interested and based on what we're seeing on the top five highest enrollment courses and the rates of D grades, F grades, withdrawals or W's for withdrawals and I's for incompletes, DFWIs, you know, we were just getting aggregate outcomes. There seemed to be based on some of the aggregate outcomes we were seeing, a real need to offer a uh, uh, continuous improvement process around gateway courses like we were doing around the first year and also transfer. And thus in 2012, 2013, we began working with a national advisory committee uh, and with encouragement from um, a number of national organizations to construct that process, right? The Dana Center was involved. ACRO had uh, persons involved. Uh, Elaine Seymour out of the University of Colorado at Boulder was involved, a whole host of others. And so that's where the gateway to completion process came from. Now, that is a, at uh, this juncture, a three-year engagement uh, where we help institutions uh, gather evidence, analyze evidence, and uh, then use that analysis to redesign foundational level courses, gateway courses. That's done through, um, not unlike the other work where, where it's task force-based assessment, this is done through task force worth as well, usually course-specific committees where faculty, staff, uh, and others get together at a course level and uh, analyze uh, historic outcomes, analyze survey data from currently enrolled students and any other data they have and come up with an evidence-based course redesign plan. In the second year of the work, they implement that course redesign, learn from what they're doing. In the third year, they refine it, right? So hence the, the three-year model on that. To date, we've worked with uh, just shy of 100 institutions in that work since we launched it, <coughs> excuse me, about um, eight years ago. And, um, you know, some of the 
takeaways. Um, you know, some of them are actually quite sad, and I and I don't mean that to be pejorative. I mean it from the standpoint we had suspected that race, ethnicity, income were some of the best predictors of who succeeds in great gateway courses. Um, this certainly showed it. Right. Because we began collecting the evidence in a disaggregated manner with additional demographic factors and the institutions provided that way and have allowed us to do further analysis on it. The good news about that is that's compelled a whole host of organizations and persons to to action. Right. The American Historical Association took outcomes that they asked us to share with them. They took it to the Mellon Foundation. And now there's a history gateways project where we're working on redesign of uh, foundational level history courses in 11 institutions across the U.S. The Gates Foundation has, has used some of what we report to uh, inform their work around particularly courseware uh, and digital learning, right? And uh, so it outgrowths of this are well beyond what we had imagined. What we can also tell you is that, um, you know, from external evaluation of work that we did, for example, with the University System of Georgia, is that evidence-based redesign courses does lead to a significant decrease in failure rates, DFWIs and gateway courses. And it's particularly uh, most beneficial for students from historically marginalized and uh, minoritized populations and marginalized includes family income, right? So uh, it's doing what we hope. It's now compelled us to also say, well, right, if you address the foundational level courses, what do you need to do in the broader curriculum? What do you need to do in other aspects of the undergrad experience? But that's what Gateways to Completion does. It's been revised, reformed, updated with the help of, of, of many, many, many persons at the Gardner Institute. I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge Dr. Stephanie Foote and her leadership around that over the past few years. But it uh, it all started back with uh, you know, John and Betsy looking at the first college year, Betsy Griffin here helping us look, collect information on uh, top five highest enrollment first year courses and, you know, what we learned and then how we applied what we learned to do that work. Drew, thank you for sharing about the Gateways to Completion, which focuses on high enrolling first year courses. Part of this work helps to uh, really focus on the course level by disaggregating data to potentially uncover equity gaps. Let's now talk about another service offered by the Gardner Institute, that being the retention performance management process. You've been alluding to this, but why is it critical for colleges and universities to focus on student retention? And how does a service such as the Retention Performance Management, or RPM, help institutions do just that? What are some successful strategies you might recommend to help us foster retention and completion? Stephen, um, retention performance, I mentioned we were a learning organization. Retention performance at the management is... Uh, when uh, an example of when the Gardner Institute learns that uh, it had avoided want, uh, intentionally talking about retention for many, many years, um, we would quip, John would, but others would too. I, I, I chimed in that uh, retention is a minimal standard. All you really needed was a 2.0 and a pulse. Truth be told, you got below 2.0 uh, and still be retained. Um, and 
you know, we wanted to focus on excellence in the first college year. And a lot of people like really bought into that. You know, you, you could get an amen. Uh, and then they would quietly whisper and say, but but what did you find from a retention standpoint? Uh, that was always a follow-up question of that. So um, as we were doing the work around gateways to completion, uh, we acknowledged that we needed to create an evidence-based self-study process that specifically zeroed in on retention, right? We had one on the first college year, one on transfer, one on gateway courses, and retention is a component of that. But it, it was an implicit component. And so we created a self-study process, a plan generation process that was explicitly created and explicitly done to zero in on, on retention outcomes. You know, you asked about strategies and we're frequently asked, you know, like, OK, so they generate this plan. What are the things they wound up doing? And, um, you know, we have whole presentations and, you know, in some cases even, um, you know, produce scholarship on the types of strategies uh, that, that people utilize. Often they wind up zeroing in on gateway courses, right? And that's not a surprise because there is a direct correlation between not doing well in foundational level courses and not being back at the institution at which you did not do well in even one foundational course the year prior. And sadly, given uh, the role of race, ethnicity and predicting that frequently, it means that there are inequitable attrition outcomes. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of things that folks do work in gateway courses, evidence-based and engaging pedagogies, uh, first-year seminars, learning communities, high-impact practices. What RPM does is it helps um, an institutional task force uh, acknowledge where they need to do work, highlight where they need to do work, allows them to create a plan, comprehensive plan to address retention and uh, make an intentional whole out of perhaps some existing disparate pieces and also identify some gaps. So really to us, what it addresses the missing piece in the retention puzzle is, you know, they have tons of programs and maybe even need a few more, but what a lot of institutions don't have is a comprehensive strategy to pull it together. And that's what RPM does, right? Retention performance management. So um, yes, I could get into various strategies. But what we don't do is come in and say, take two learning community programs and one first year seminar program and call us in the morning, right? We're not prescriptive in any of this. What we are is guiding a self-study process. And then uh, the institutional task force comes up with, with the plan. We get feedback on the plan. We point to evidence. We use our wisdom garnered over, in John's case, 55 years, right, to help shape some of this. Uh, and But um, ultimately, the, the secret sauce in all of this is the generation of an evidence-based plan that they then implement to a high degree. An evidence-based plan, producing a comprehensive strategy where you pull together all of the variables that help foster retention. Drew, thanks for describing RPM. And you've been describing the retention performance management, gateways to completion, and foundations of excellence uh, programs and services of the Gardner Institute in our last few questions. And again, I would invite listeners to learn all about these activities and many others by consulting the Gardner Institute's website, jngi.org. 
drew all of the approaches to student success that we have been discussing. And these include, of course, those related to teaching, learning, retention, completion, equity, and social justice. All of these require people on our campuses to work together to achieve results. From your experience, what role do senior leaders and others, including faculty and staff colleagues, what role do people play in shaping a supportive culture of this work? Stephen, I'm glad you asked that because to my Gardner Institute colleagues and I, um, at the end of the day, all educators, and I use the term educator broadly, right? Whether you're in uh, the bursar's office, the registrar's office, and admissions, you're teaching foundational level courses, you're teaching upper level courses, you're all providing a vital role and playing a vital role in um, the education process. So therefore, we regard you as, as educators, right? Um, all educators have agency in this work. It can be maddening and frustrating for educators to uh, see uh, outcomes of unjustly designed. They might not even use that verbiage, right? But but see inefficient systems that lead to or are at least correlated with attrition, and in many cases, inequitable attrition. Because they are leaders and because they have agency, um, you know, what we will do is create uh, task forces to help them with their individual and respective wisdom, bring together collective wisdom to uh, implement plans. Now, increasingly what we're doing is also focusing on the readiness, the willingness, the ability, and the capacities that various educators, uh, you know, have to be leaders, right? Um, And so we've been fortunate in that um, we've been able to develop either with our own resources or with resources provided from foundations, experiences to further refine capacities of leaders, right? A couple examples of this, you know, include a uh, innovation community practice for chief academic officers that uh, we did at the Gardner Institute. We did it last year. Um, and we did it without any funding and we didn't charge anything for it, right? We're a not-for-profit organization. Not everything we do has to have a fee associated with it. I know uh, no margin, no mission, but not everything has to be a four-fee service. Um, so we we did that last year with uh, nine chief academic officers, learned a lot from it. But really, the, the innovation that we're focusing on is innovation around the undergrad experience uh, with a heavy em- equity emphasis on it. Right. So that's one aspect, you know, further developing chief academic officers as chief innovation officers, particularly innovation around the undergrad experience. Um We've recognized that uh, boards play a pivotal role in all of this. And so um, with support from Ascendium Foundation and in partnership with the Association of Governing Boards, we've created a Governing Board Equity and Retention Academy. And we're not simply working with governing boards. Rather, we're working in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Uh, a special nod to Aaron Thompson, the president of the Kentucky Council on Post-Secondary Education, Melissa Bell, the vice president there, uh, other colleagues in CPE, helped us identify nine institutions in Kentucky where we're working with um, the cabinets, uh, uh, in a number of cases, faculty leadership, faculty Senate leaders, and board members uh, to help boards and leadership teams further develop a shared vision. We view equitable student success as part of the fiduciary role that a board has. And if you're going to view it as such, 
how do you help them ask the right questions, look at the right data uh, without getting too involved in operations, right, in in an appropriate way. So we're we're building that capacity in boards as we build that capacity in conjunction with the Association for Governing Boards, AGB, to do that work. Uh, We've been doing, as a result of what we learned in Gateways to Completion, a teaching and learning academy um, where uh, we're working with uh, individual faculty and sometimes cohorts of faculty, not just individual, but collectives of faculty. And by faculty, we mean also a lot of adjuncts and um, to um, help them learn about evidence-based engaging pedagogies and apply that in their courses, whether they do it as part of G2C or outside of that, right? So increasingly what we are doing uh, with various forms of leaders, whether it's in the classroom, in the boardroom, uh, in the CAO's office, uh, we're going to move to or looking to develop academies on the first college year. We're going to roll that out next year. We're doing an academy with the uh, QA Commons focused on equitable employability and completion. They're looking and focusing on uh, advisors, career uh, counselor folks. Um to help them. But long story short, Stephen, it's about developing capacities or further refining capacities in leaders of all ilks and all types um, to help them have agency to close inequitable performance gaps and yield a more just design and more equitable outcomes in the undergrad experience. From the classroom to the boardroom and every place in between, Drew, you're reminding us that everyone on campus should be viewed as an educator. We all have agency in this work, and we can bring together collective wisdom to make a difference for students. So I'm so pleased the Gardner Institute is a new partner of the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis. And I'm grateful that the Gardner Institute colleagues will participate in our October 2022 event. Drew, broadly speaking, what role does assessment and improvement play in the types of services and resources the Gardner Institute offers its institutional partners? Assessment, evaluation, improvement are the reason why we do what we do, or at least one of the underlying whys behind what we do. If equitable, more equitable outcomes and a more socially just design is our big why, you get there through uh, evidence and by exposing unjust design and getting evidence in the hands of uh, a, a greater sense or a greater set of leaders who can then apply it to the work and make sense out of it, right? Um, so... Um, I'd be remiss, and I have been remiss for not acknowledging the pivotal role until now of institutional research leaders, of institutional effectiveness leaders, um, of accreditation leaders, um, and that's even accreditation and disciplines, right? So uh, we work very closely and could not do this work without professionals uh, who serve in those roles. And at the end of the day, in the absence of evidence, uh, you absolutely positively need it to make uh, the types of changes that we're talking about. Without it, uh, you know, issues associated with design, unjust design, unquestioned design, never have sunlight shined on them, right? So um, we are very, very much so about evidence-based and that's, you know, the reason and and focused on learning in particular is the reason why uh, Russ Edgerton back in 1999 gave that initial grant to us, right? So it's a pivotal part of uh, what we do. And it's a, it's a big foundational block. No, no, uh, 
pun intended, in how we do what we do. Drew, you're reminding us of the importance of evidence in this work. And I invite our listeners to connect with colleagues from the Gardner Institute, among other places they will be visiting throughout the fall. They'll be joining us at the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis. You can learn more at our website, assessmentinstitute.iupui.edu. Drew, as we draw our time together to a close, I have a couple of concluding questions for you. One asks you to consult your crystal ball and look ahead over some of the next few years concerning major trends you see shaping the higher education landscape, including how the Gardner Institute is preparing to address some of these trends. Stephen, I, I, I think if, uh, if the persons you interviewed didn't mention the pandemic, they, they've been and um, the nation's latest efforts to reconcile its uh, inequitable slave-based and colonization-based past, that they would have been having their heads in the sand for the past two and a half years, right? So, I, you know, I, I don't think I am being uh, profound by saying um, the pandemic um, and uh, greater awareness and greater commitment towards uh, efforts that advance more just and equitable outcomes are some of the key trends that are influencing the work right now. But because of those, people are exhausted. Um, And we hear this a lot from institutions. We hear that um, they they, uh, really, really, really recognize that they need to do this work. Um, and this work being uh, redesigning aspects of the undergrad experience, if not the entirety of the undergrad experience. But they also say, but our colleagues are exhausted. Um, and so this is, um, and, and by the way, the next breath they say, but if you can connect work around undergraduate education redesign with both some existential pieces associated with enrollment and finances, along with equity pieces, right? then they and we will find a way to do it. Um, Now, part of the reason why people are exhausted is because many institutions have an array of efforts that they're doing, uh, and they're often not coordinated. There's often duplication of effort. They're often siloed. Um, That isn't necessarily one person's design, but it is a design decision nonetheless, right, or multiple decisions to design things that way. So in terms of our emerging work, yes, we're going to continue to do work around specific aspects of the undergrad experience. We'll continue to do various forms of capacity development, leadership development around the undergraduate experience. But what we'll also do is uh, offer an approach, (coughs) offer an approach that uh, guides institutions and supports institutions as they really want to dig in and say, we need to make a much more intentional whole out of this cacophonous uh, experience that we have right now, where there are programs here, programs there, programs everywhere. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier in the in the absence of a plan, you need a plan, right? Programs are necessary, but insufficient in and of themselves. So what our work will be emerging into is both doing these individual pieces, right? You can do it in an a la carte manner but doing something that allows institutions to pull it all together in a comprehensive manner that's based on initial evaluation of capacity 
capacities and readiness and willingness and ability to do the work, uh, and then structures and experience based on actual needs. That doesn't just, by the way, and here are the things that the Gardner Institute will do for you, but also says, what are the other things that you're doing, right? You're doing the NESI, you're involved in Complete College American initiatives, you're part of a UNCF Intermarriage for Scale project. How do we fit these pieces together? I used the term cacophonous earlier, cacophony, right? Uh, it might be one of the reasons why I don't get invited to a lot of parties, Stephen. But let's let's go with it and go with that metaphor, right? How do we harmonize all of that, whether we're doing it with you, the Gardner Institute, over a four or five-year period of time, or we're doing some things with you and others are doing that? So our emerging work will be both on making a much more intentional whole out of the otherwise disparate pieces and therefore um, yielding better and more just outcomes as a result. And also, by the way, doing other things, lighter lift, shorter lift, academies, processes, and some of the processes that we've been doing for like two or three year year engagements with institutions. So part of the emerging work uh, comes out of institutions saying to us, um, we need help pulling all these pieces together we don't have the bandwidth to create our own structures. We don't have the time, energy, or resources to duplicate efforts. Help us figure that out, right? That's an emerging component. Now, one other thing, and a number of things that are also emerging, are the fact that in some instances, institutions say, yeah, we need to do that, but we're not ready for it. Do you have some shorter-term things that we can engage in and build capacity? And that's where I alluded to a number of our academies. I talked about the academy on uh equitable employability and uh, completion. Uh, We've been doing an equity and retention academy over the past two years with 64 institutions involved. These are shorter term, five weeks, six year, uh, five to six week experiences that uh, help institutional teams plan to create a plan, right? So I think it's twofold there, Steve, and one that really leans in and helps institutions uh, pull all the pieces together another set of experiences that help institutions address particular aspects in a timely or faster manner and build momentum so that perhaps over the time they can do that that uh, heavier lift and deeper dive. Drew, thank you for sharing how the Gardner Institute will continue to evolve and be responsive to current and emerging trends. And you alluded uh, that as other guests of this podcast and indeed elsewhere have been talking about all of this driving from our responsiveness to both the pandemic, but also national and local cries for, in your words, a more just and equitable outcomes oriented future in higher education. So, Drew, as we conclude, we always end our episodes by asking guests to share with our listeners a brief final thought. So the pressure's on. What's the brief final thought Drew Koch would like to leave with us today? Even the, the, the final thought is um, uh, an element that I mentioned earlier, but, you know, the best things in life merit repetition, right? Telling loved ones you love them, right? Well, I will tell colleagues working in higher ed that uh, in the midst of being exhausted, in the midst of um, confronting many, many different challenges and compounding and uh, confounding dynamics, you do have agency in all of this. And um, that agency may manifest itself in your course, in your department, in your office, but that agency exists. You also have networks and I would encourage you, uh, if the Gardner Institute 
uh, sounds like it uh, is an entity with which you or where you may want to explore and see. We have networks that are going on and we don't have a network. In some given cases, we create them, right? If there's enough demand. In other cases, we point to networks that already exist, right? We don't have the resource, the time or energy effort to duplicate when we know there are good efforts underway, right? The Inland Empire, Growing Inland Achievement, in Texas, the E3 Alliance, um, you know, the list goes on and on and on. I named two right there, right? Uh, AHEC for Tribal Colleges, Excellencia for HSIs, I mentioned UNCF, right? So there are many networks and many entities that we can point to, and those are excellent resources. But I would encourage folks, yes, you have agency, um, and to keep up the good fight uh, and to, to advance the cause around more just and equitable design and outcomes in post-secondary education. And I thank you for doing that. I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for how you've done it. And I welcome you to um, help us and uh, in some cases help you figure out how to continue that work. We have agency and we have networks. Wise words indeed. We've been speaking with Drew Koch, Chief Executive Officer of the John N. Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education. I would invite listeners to consult the Gardner Institute's website, jngi.org, where you can connect with Drew and his colleagues. Drew, thanks so much for our time together. I really have enjoyed our conversation and appreciate all of the insights you've been sharing with us today. Stephen, thank you very much. This has been Leading Improvements in Higher Education, the award-winning podcast service of the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis. Learn more and access other episodes at assessmentinstitute.iupui.edu. Our sponsor for this season is the Center for Assessment and Research Studies at James Madison University. Learn more at jmu.edu slash assessment. Our podcast producers are Chad Beckner, Caleb Keith, and Shirley Yorger, with original music composed by Caleb Keith. If you know someone who might enjoy the podcast, please encourage them to give us a listen. We appreciate you helping to spread the word. I'm Stephen Hundley from IUPUI, inviting you to join us again for Leading Improvements in Higher Education.